You know, we are obsessed with success, aren't we? In fact, our society has become so obsessed with success that we really begin to categorize our lives and all of the small elements of our lives one of two ways. It's either a success or a failure, right? It's cut and dry for most of us. And what I have begun to see in my life and even in the lives of, of many of the people that I love is that this, this dichotomy that we create in our life, this, this clear-cut success-failure categories have begun to paralyze us. That many people want to be married, but they're afraid that the marriage might fail. Many people want to have children, but then they think, what if I can't handle it? They want to start a business, but then they think, but, but what if the business goes belly up? What, what, what if I don't have an income? They want to go on mission, but then they think, well, what if the money doesn't work out? What if I get over there and I get sick? Like, what if it fails? Many people want to do great things for the kingdom of God. And one of the primary reasons that they have not yet stepped out in faith is that they are afraid that they will fail. But what if success isn't as we've understood it to be? What if success is different than what we have begun to categorize in our lives? What if we define ca uh, our categories wrong? And what if we've defined success itself wrong? What if we're evaluating ourselves on each individual element, each individual aspect, each individual tree in our lives when success can really only be viewed from a zoomed out forest perspective? See, Christians, we use different definitions than everybody else uses. We use different definitions than everybody else uses. And this is especially true when it comes to success. That our definitions of success look different than that of our neighbors, that of our colleagues, that of our friends. And as we look at our discipleship process, last week we talked about connect. This week we're going to talk about the next step, which is to disciple. And I think this definition of success is especially relevant and especially important when we begin to consider the realities of disciple making. Because as we look at the New Testament, I think the New Testament's definition of success is actually quite clear. And I think it can be boiled down to two things. Are you a disciple of Jesus? And are you making disciples of Jesus? Are you a disciple of Jesus? And are you making disciples of Jesus? And so I think what we see in 2 Timothy is we see Paul zeroing in on the reality of what success actually is, of defining it clearly for his child in the faith, his son in the faith, Timothy. And you have to realize that Paul is in a place in his life in which having the right definition of success is everything. Now, I've, you know, in ministry, you have the opportunity to be with people who were getting closer to the end of their lives. And one of the things that I've realized about people as they come to the end of their lives and as they begin to define is success, the, their definition of success typically shifts. Earlier in their life, it was how much money am I making? What kind of house am I living in? What kind of car am I driving? What is, what is the success of my kids on the athletic field? At the end of their lives, it's do my kids love me? Do they want to come home? It's do I have a marriage that stood the test of time? And so what we have here with Paul is we have Paul writing the very last letter that he ever wrote. 
the final letter. And in this final letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, he's clarifying for himself and he's taking this definition and he's handing it off to Timothy that Timothy can define his life by the right things, that he can define his successes the right way. You know, it's, it's been common for me. As a young pastor, you know, we'll inevitably go through something, you know, like life's just hard, right? Like ministry's weird, life's hard, that's, that's how it goes. And inevitably, I'll have a senior saint from our church, multiple ones have done this over the last seven years. And they'll come and they'll sit down in my office and they'll say, Pastor, you know this isn't that big a deal, right? Pastor, you know, you know everything's okay, right? You know that, you know that we all love you. You know that we all support you. You know that this, this feels big, but it's not that big. And what are they doing? They're sharing with me the wisdom of true success, of, of, of healthy perspective, of the kind of thing that you can only get through life's hard knocks, right? And so what I think what we see in our text this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 1 is something that probably you never thought you'd hear me say in a sermon. I think what we see are literally the four steps to success. The four steps to a successful life, all right? Now, not many of y'all came to Iron City Baptist Church thinking that's what the sermon was going to be about, the four steps to a successful life. But what I want you to see is that our text is really built around four commands, four imperative statements. And we always like for the sermon to follow the structure of the text. I want you to see these and how this works down here. All right, so in verse 13, what does he say? He says, Follow the pattern of the sound words. Follow the pattern of sound words. Now, look at verse 14. What does he say? He says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Follow the pattern of the sound words. Guard the good deposit that has been given to you, that has been entrusted to you, that has been deposited into your life. Now look at chapter 2, verse 1. What does he say? He says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 2 he says, And what you have heard in the presence of many witnesses, now entrust to faithful men. All right, so, what, so do you see how this text is laid out? Follow the pattern of the sound words. Guard the deposit that has been given to you. Be strengthened by the grace. And now take that which has been entrusted to you and entrust it to others. And what we're able to see there are the four steps of a successful life from the perspective of the kingdom. So first, what we see is that we are to follow the gospel's path, to follow the gospel's path. You know, at one time, the Grand Canyon was just a trickle. Have you ever thought about that? That at one time, now look, I, I don't, I'm not trying to make a, 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 a declarative statement on the state of the creation, okay? I don't know how God worked it all out, all right? But, but at one time, best we could tell, the Grand Canyon was just a trickle, that there was just some water running across the top of the ground. But over the years, from one generation to the next generation, the Colorado River has, has poured and poured and streamed and streamed so that now, so that now there is a canyon that is so vast and so wide that to stand on the edge of it provokes an emotional response, doesn't it? What we're seeing here in 2 Timothy is we're seeing the initial trickle of the kingdom. The initial trickle of the kingdom. That the 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 Kingdom, the gospel has been passed from Jesus down to the apostles, and now it is being handed from the apostles to the next generation. And so the, the 
gospel is beginning to, to flow and the water is beginning to pour and it is uh, beginning to have this beautiful, wonderful, transformative, erosive effect carving itself through the stone-hard hearts of men. That is, that what we see is that we're reading about a trickle that has led to a well-grooved path, that it was begun by Jesus, passed to the apostles, and has now been inherited by us. That's what it means when he says, follow the pattern. Follow the pattern. Walk through this well-grooved path. You don't go to the right. You don't go to the left. You follow the pattern that has been set by Jesus, by the apostles, by Timothy, and by all of those generations that have gone before you. You are walking in a heritage. You are walking in a tradition. You are walking in a way that is well-established, well-grooved. And now, now, as we look around the world, what do we see? This trickle has turned into a vast and wide kingdom, bringing glory to the name of Jesus. He is the little bit of leaven that was placed right into the midst of the dough, but now it is beginning to permeate all peoples, all nations, all languages, right? But we shouldn't understand this to be calling us to a boring uniformity. So I, th I think sometimes one of the hang-ups that we have and one of the misconceptions that we have in the life of the church is that all of us should eventually look and sound the same. That what it, part of what redemption is doing as it's maturing us and as it's sanctifying us, that all mature Christians, all of those who are walking with Jesus kind of talk the same way and look the same way and act the same way and think the same way and view the world through the, through the same eyes. And look, there is some truth that when Jesus brings about change in your life, there are some specific ways that he changes you, right? Like we, we know that. But this well-grooved path, part of what makes it so beautiful is that it is filled with peculiarity and beauty and uniqueness and individuality within the collective kingdom. See, that's what the word pattern means. The word pattern, okay, so... If you were to go and you were to talk to a contractor about, you know, I, I used Phil Bussey earlier in the, in the pre, or Russell's right here. If you were to talk to Russell, if you were to take Russell to, to lunch tomorrow and you were to tell him, hey, Russell, I, I'm thinking about uh, doing this addition onto my home. And I would, you know what Russell would do? I, I assume Russell would do it because every contractor on God's earth does this. He would tear a, a piece of scrap paper laying around. He would get a napkin and a pen and he'd start drawing it. Right? Y'all seen this? And you know, I'm always thinking, I know you're not going to be able to find this in 30 minutes. So you, I know you're just doing this to make me feel better because I know there's no way that you can, you can find this in 30 minutes. Now, uh, that plan that's been drawn out on a napkin, it's not blueprints, right? It's different than blueprints. That between the napkin and the blueprint, some things might change. The structure would be the same. The overall direction would be the same, but the cosmetics are likely to be different. Even, even within the blueprint, by the time you get from the blueprint to the actual build, that can look different. That, that the bones are the same, and the foundation might be the same, and again, the overall direction might be the same. But when you actually get to the, the house, the cosmetics, the, the finished product looks a little bit different. Well, the word pattern here means something like that. 
It's, it's the idea of a prototype. It's something that has been established, a direction that has been given. It is, a, it is the, the, the drawing on the napkin before you get to the blueprints. But then when it's lived out in our lives, you have this foundation of words, these sound words that are lived out through our personalities, through who we are. That is, Jesus doesn't just eliminate our distinctions and our personalities. Rather, Jesus works through them. See, here's, this is something that's cool, I think. All right, so there's a unity to be in sound words. The word sound, the sound words there, it means literally healthy words. Words that, that give you life. Words that, that make you well. Words that get into your bones and bring them back together, right? So what's he talking about there? He's talking about the substance of the gospel. That doesn't change. We must be uniform in the substance of our faith. We must be uniform in our understanding of the scriptures. We must be uniform in our passion for the gospel, in our understanding of the gospel, our application of the gospel, that in the substance of the faith, there is no wiggle room for individuality, right? Then, then there's something else. You'll notice he says, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That it's not just that we are to live out the substance of our faith, we are to live according to the substance of our faith by the spirit of Jesus. That we are to live out the truth in a spirit of love, in a spirit of, of gentleness, in a spirit of meekness, in a spirit of humility, in a spirit of compassion, in a spirit of mercy. So it is to worship the Lord quite literally in spirit and in truth. And in those things, we are to be uniform. We are to be uniform in substance. We are to be uniform in spirit. But, but, but from there... It is to take the substance of the gospel, and it is to take the spirit of the gospel, and it is to funnel it through your personality, to funnel it through your life experiences, to funnel it through your passions, to, to bring it into the midst of your friendships and your relationships. That one of the ways that the gospel fills the earth with the glory of God is that the substance of the gospel and the spirit of the gospel goes and filters through all of the image bearers to the ends of the earth. That it is reflective of God's creative glory. His reflective of God's creative glory that the substance of the gospel and the spirit of the gospel can be lived out through you. Through you. Not who you think you ought to be. Not somebody else, what somebody else says you ought to be. But who God made you to be. Who God designed you to be. See, I think sometimes that we think that the goal of our church is to have 350 or 400 people that basically look and act the same. But can I tell you something? That's failure. That's failure. That, that, that is not a success for Iron City Baptist Church. The, the goal is not to have 350 or 400 automatons, these ro Iron City robots that it looks like we constructed in an assembly line. No, no. The goal is that we could bring you you and all the things that make you, you. And watch that be sanctified by the substance of the gospel. And watch that be applied in the spirit of the gospel. And then we bring all of you, hundreds of you together with your personality and your experiences and your passions and your abilities. And we bring you together into one body and one unity. And we're able to see how God, how Christ has overcome every obstacle and every distance to bring a unique and passionate uniformity, right? See, I wonder, I wonder this morning, what is not being done for Jesus in our community, in our church, because you feel like a failure? I wonder. And, and, and I wonder if the reason that you feel like a failure is that you don't look like somebody else. 
I wonder if the reason that you look like a failure is that disciple-making for you has looked different than disciple-making for someone else. I wonder if one of the reasons that you look like a failure is that the application of your faith has looked different in your life than it has in someone else's life. I wonder if you feel like a failure because your learning style is different than somebody else's learning style. I wonder if you feel like a failure because your parenting style is different than someone else's parenting style. And so you feel like a failure and you feel like you're not measuring up and you feel like you don't belong in the kingdom of God when the truth is, when the truth is the gospel is calling you, you, who you are, to come and to join in with this movement and to bring your own uniqueness and your own quirkiness and your own idiosyncrasies and your own strangeness and your own peculiarity and to bring it together to build this wonderful mosaic of the kingdom of God bound together in substance bound together in spirit filtered through each individual personality do y'all see how much more beautiful that is it's far more beautiful God's kingdom is being built with quirky eccentric inadequate people and you're one of them And I'm one of them, right? Now what I want you to see is that success in the kingdom isn't just about following the gospel's path. It's about staying on the path. It isn't just following the path, it's staying on the path. That is, you must stay the course. You must stay the course. So you'll notice that he says, guard the good. That's that imperative that we talked about, right? But now, the word good, there's a, there's a lot of different ways to translate good deposit. In fact, if you have a different translation than me, you may have it translated differently, okay? So I think it's helpful for us to see that the word good can mean beautiful, beautiful. That it is a beautiful depo- deposit, that it is a, a pleasing deposit, that it is an enchanting uh, deposit. Now, the word deposit can mean, in fact, if you have a New American Standard Bible, it probably says this, or it does say this, does it probably say this, I've, I've, I've read it. Uh, it says treasure, right? That a good deposit quite literally is a beautiful treasure. That by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the beautiful treasure entrusted to you. That to take this which has been, that which is wonderful, this which is beautiful, and your responsibility now is to defend, to protect, to guard the beautiful treasure that you've been entrusted with. It is to stay the course with the true gospel so that through you the gospel might reap a return on its investment. And you'll see here how the word disciple can be both a verb and a noun. You know, like you've heard that, that love is both a verb and a noun, right? Like you can, you can possess love, you can have love, it's, it's a noun, and you can love someone. It's an action, it's, it's a verb. And you know, we use the word disciple like that here, don't we? That I am a disciple, and yet I disciple. I disciple you, right? And that, I, I think when we see the word guard, guarding, the concept of guarding the deposit, guarding the gospel, guarding this beautiful treasure that has been entrusted with us, we're able to see that. We're able to understand what it means, that the nature of guarding is to ensure that you're treasuring what ought to be treasured, that you're holding fast to it, that you're, you're clinging to it, that I'm, I'm treasuring. So, so it's, it's possessing it, in other words. It's possessing it in your bones. It's possessing it in your spirit. It's possessing it and, and making it part of who you are. But also, how do I guard it? I guard it by taking it and I entrust it to someone else. By making sure that it doesn't just get from the last generation to me, but it gets from my generation to the next generation. By taking it and making sure that my kids, Gracie, Kate, and Sarah, Eliza, and Josiah, that they see the treasure as beautiful. To come every week, week in and week out, the primary goal of my preaching is to help you see that the treasure is beautiful. 
It's to take, and it's at the same time guarding the deposit, right? It's discipling. So I am a disciple, having been entrusted with this beautiful treasure. And I am discipling others by entrusting them now with the beautiful treasure. And that's the work that the Holy Spirit does. You'll notice that he says, by the Holy Spirit. Now, why did he throw that in there? Why did he throw that in there? What is the primary work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church today? The primary work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church today is to transform our nature so that we see the true treasure as beautiful. That's the primary work. You can't be saved unless the Spirit softens your heart. You can't be saved unless the Spirit quickens your senses. You can't be saved unless the Spirit opens your eyes to see what is only spiritually discerned, as 1 Corinthians 2 says. That that the Spirit transforms your nature, and as the Spirit refines your nature more and more, the, the truth of the gospel, the substance of the gospel becomes more and more beautiful to you. So that now, more in your life, the fruit of the Spirit begins to manifest, and the Spirit of the gospel is applied in your life. And then, you know what's even cooler? than that. So the Spirit works, it transforms your nature so that you can begin to treasure what ought to be treasured. But then He works through you so that as you speak the gospel, as you live according to this treasure, as you talk about how wonderful and transformative it's been in your life, the Spirit works through your words to do the same for someone else. To open up their eyes, to soften their heart, to transform their nature so that now they can treasure what ought to be treasured. See, there's an impulse There is an impulse that's been realized by every generation of the church. And it's an impulse to edit and innovate the message that we have so that it can become more accepted by whichever generation is modern at the time. In Timothy's time, the impulse was to make the gospel more Jewish or to make the gospel more stoic or to make the gospel more philosophical or to make the gospel more integrated with the other religions of the day. In a place like Ephesus, where the whole economy was hinged upon the false worship of a false god named Artemis, the the thrust was that we can integrate these things, we can synchronize those things together. And so the idea was we can innovate this gospel message so that it will be more palatable, more acceptable. In our day, the, the impulse is the same. It's to make the gospel more, more nationalistic or more republican. It's the impulse to make the gospel less supernatural or more scientific. It's to make the gospel something in which we can be more tolerant of a 21st century sexual ethic. It's to take what has been given to us, those sound words, that, that well-grooved track of the gospel's path, and it's to begin to try to waver within it so that we can bring more people on it. But do you want to know the real reason we have that impulse? The primary reason we have that impulse is we don't want it to be uncomfortable for us. The primary reason that we have the impulse to innovate the gospel is we want the gospel to be more accepted because if the gospel is more accepted, then maybe I will be more accepted. That is, that the primary reason that we have an impulse to innovate the gospel is we have an impulse to avoid pain, to avoid hardship, or maybe to put it more in our language, to avoid failure. To avoid failure, because if you don't like me, I've failed. If, if my friends disapprove of me, I fail. 
If my colleagues disapprove of me, then I've failed. If, if the gospel causes discomfort for me in, in business lunches, then, then I feel like a failure. I feel like I'm the one that's messed up. I feel like I'm the one that ought to change, that needs to be different. And I think that's the reason that Paul gives to Timothy the two examples that he gives to them. I think this is powerful, y'all. Okay, look in verse 15. Look what he says. You are aware that all, all that now that he's speaking in a bit of hyperbole there. We uh, he's fixing to point out a family that was there. We know Timothy there. This is this is in Ephesus, the, the province of Asia. But you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Whoa, right? A whole province of people, a place in which Paul has invested his life, a place in which Paul has given of himself, a place in which he has taken this good deposit, this this beautiful treasure, and and handed it over to the next generation. And now, here he is at the end of his life, and he's in chains, and he's about to, and to be associated with Paul came with a cost. To be associated with Paul came at a a social cost. It came at, at potentially the cost of even your life, as Paul himself is going to be beheaded. And these Asian Christians, they said, we're out. We're out. There's, there's another way. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a different way. There must be something flawed in Paul. But then look at what he says. There's another example. He says, but may the Lord grant grace, grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, right? That out of this whole province of people, there's one household that refreshes him. There's one household that builds him up. There's one household that encourages him. Now I want you to think about this for a second. Would you, clarify, would you classify a ministry that takes this shape as a success or as a failure? How would you classify it? A whole province has abandoned him. A whole province has went home. A whole province has given up. One household stands up. One household says this, for me and my house, we stand with Paul. We walk down the path of the gospel. One household. So if Paul were to ask you, is my ministry a success or a failure, what would you say? You see, brothers and sisters, our definitions are wrong. Our definitions are wrong. Jesus was a success, and yet the crowds came and they called for his crucifixion. One of his own disciples betrayed him. All of the rest of his disciples abandoned him. Caiaphas condemned him. Pilate was indifferent to him. And yet, and yet, and yet, we would say the ministry of Jesus, the pouring of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the disciple-making of Jesus was successful. The ministry of Paul. The ministry of Paul. Paul is abandoned time and again. Time and again by by men that he had given his life to. He's walking as a disciple of Christ. He's making disciples of Christ. And yet as he makes them, they hurt him. And they wound him. And they depart from him. If you give your life to being a disciple and making disciples and have nothing left but the same beautiful gospel that you were given, brothers and sisters, your ministry was a success. Your disciple-making was a success. A few years ago, I had a conversation with a faithful woman in our church. And she was passionate about making disciples and being a part of this discipleship movement. And she had been a part of a group, and it went really well. It had been really transformative in her life. And she was burdened by all of the young mothers that she sees in our church. And she said, I'm going to give my life to them. I'm going to give my life to them. And she began to meet with a group of those young mothers. And she would meet week after week after week. And she would teach and pour and read. And as time went on, more and more, they disengaged. More and more, they began to separate themselves. More and more, it came down to the fact where she said, Cody, I I just feel like 
They don't want me. Rejected, abandoned. The passion was there. The sincerity was there. The burden was there. The devotion was there. All of it was there. And then there was abandonment. I'll ask you, is that a success or is that a failure? Is that a success or is that a failure? It feels like a failure. But when we zoom out, not focused on the trees, but we zoom out and we look at the forest of the kingdom, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the scriptures teach us that that faithfulness is a success. And it, is, it will be a success on the day in which you stand before your Lord. And I am convinced that those young mothers will remember something. The seed will be cultivated at some point, even, even, even if it's not in the eyes of that one dedicated and committed disciple maker. Disciple makers, here's what I'm calling you to do. I'm calling you back. I'm calling you back. I know many of you gave of your life and you gave, you woke up early and stayed up late and on the phone and agonized over what to teach and what to read and how to help. And at the end of the day, what you felt like is you just felt like a failure. You felt like it didn't work. You felt like nobody wanted you. And I'm telling you, the only failure will be if you don't stay the course. Come back, disciple maker. Come back. Follow in the footsteps of Jesus who was rejected. Follow in the footsteps of Paul who was abandoned. Follow as a disciple of Jesus to entrust this beautiful deposit to guard it into the next generation. And what's the hope that we have? It's the next thing that he says. So maybe you say, Cody, that sounds well and good. That sounds well and good, but but it hurts. It sounds well and good, but I've got enough drama in my life. Like I've got kids that are dramatic and I've got work that's dramatic. I've got colleagues that are dramatic and sometimes doggone it, I'm just dramatic, right? I can't, why do I have to add this kind of drama into my life? It sounds like a marathon, doesn't it? It sounds like a marathon, but if we're honest, most of us struggle with criminal minds marathons, like let alone a real marathon, you know? That's how I feel. And it is a call to endurance, but it's a call to endure in rest. A call to endure in rest. Do you see what he says there? You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace. That this is a resting marathon. That for so many of us, we think that the only people that have success in the kingdom, the only people that are actually able to make disciples are like the ultra marathoners of the Christians, right? Like, like the super fit Christians. Those that obviously have something figured out that I don't have figured out. So th- those that, that are obviously higher capacity or, or less busy or whatever they, they've got going on. And so we think, I'm not an ultra marathoner. I know that's not who I am. I can't keep this up. But you can. If, 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 if you are yoked to Christ, if you are bound to Christ, if Christ is doing the plowing, if Christ is doing the lifting, if Christ is the one heavy, uh, carrying the burden. And so that's what he means by being strengthened in grace. It, it is to rest in grace. It is to rest in grace. It is to be bound to Jesus so that Jesus does all the work and you rest. The call to be strengthened 
the, the idea of being strengthened is to be, be empowered from the, out, from, from the outside in, to be empowered by, by something else. It's not to, to look within yourself and to find a strength that is independent of everything else. It is to have something that empowers you or someone that, that gives you strength. It, it's a call to maturity as Christians, isn't it? It's a call to Christian maturity. But, you know, just like we talked about with success, our definition of maturity is often wrong. That we define maturity in a way that is the opposite, that is unnatural from the rest of the world, from all of our friends and all of our neighbors. That we, we look at maturity, when we think of maturity, we usually think, well, that means I've got to be stronger. I've got to be tougher. I've got to be thicker skinned, right? Like, I've got to be more resolved. I've got to have a stronger will. I've got to be more charismatic. I've got to, all, all, I've got to have a more forceful personality that, that if I mature in the faith, then all of those things will be true. But Christian maturity doesn't look anything like that. Christian maturity isn't you finding an inner strength. Christian maturity is you abandoning your strength altogether. That it's the immature person that sees what God has called them to do, the mission that God has called them to fulfill, the task that God has set out before them, the, the call that God has placed on their life that says, but I'm too weak and I must get stronger. No, the mature Christians that I have in my life, do you know what they say? I have received the call of God and I must get weaker still. I must get weaker still. I must come to the end of my strength. I must abandon my strength because in my weakness, his strength is made perfect. In my weakness, his strength is made perfect. To search for strength within yourself the way our world tells you to is a death sentence. You understand that? To, to look within, is there any wonder why so many of us feel like a failure so often? The world keeps saying, look deeper, look deeper, dig deeper. It's got to be in there somewhere. Like, keep finding it. And we keep digging, and we keep looking, and we keep searching, and we keep coming up empty. We've worked, and we've worked, and we've worked, and we've tried to be better, and be stronger, and do more, and be tougher, and be more stable, and be more optimistic, and be more positive. And we keep looking, and deeper, and digging, and digging. And yet, we keep coming up with nothing. And so we feel like an utter failure. Apparently, this works for everybody else. Apparently, when everybody else looks within, they find strength. Apparently, when everybody else tries to be positive, it changes their mind. But for me, for me, all I feel is like I still don't measure up. Like I still don't have enough. That's because looking inside of yourself is a death sentence. But you don't have to be the Michael Phelps of the kingdom. Grace doesn't need five-star prospects. Grace is inviting you, you, not the competent, not the intellectual, not, not the multi-gifted, not the charismatic, not the prominent, not the influential, not the popular, not the strong, not the poor, not the weak, not the young, not the old, you, you. Grace overcomes the gaps. Grace overcomes the weakness. Grace overcomes the, the difficulties. Grace overcomes the obstacles. And because of grace, anyone can get in on this. Anyone. All of you. And then the coolest part of this is what happens next. The coolest part of is what happens is grace doesn't just call you, but it calls others through you. That the successful life in the economy of the kingdom is to follow the gospel's path, stay the course, rest in grace, and then most wonderfully, most remarkably, is to take others with you. That grace can save anybody, and grace can use anybody, 
And what is remarkable and wonderful is that grace saves the anybodies by using the anybodies. You, me, us, us. You see, verse 2, verse 2 tells us both the how and the, the, it tells us both the what discipleship is and how discipleship works. You notice this? All right, so, so you may not have caught this, but this text is bookended with a common phrase, right? So look in verse 2. It says, what you have heard from me, what you have heard from me. But that was said earlier. It was said in the very first uh, verse that we read in 2 Timothy 1.13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Isn't it cool how this stuff jumps out at you? you meditate on a passage and lock in on one for a minute, man. It's amazing how these connections begin to jump out. So what is he saying? He's talking about that substance of the gospel. That you have heard it from me. You have heard it from me. And now, and now that you have heard it from me, make sure that other people hear it from you. That's what he's saying. That's all discipleship is. That if you have heard enough of the gospel to be brought into the kingdom of God, then you know enough of the gospel to bring someone else into the kingdom of God. That, that if, if you understand enough about God to be provoked, to be astonished by the glory of God, then you know enough about God to bring someone else to the place of astonishment with God. And so the task of the disciple of Jesus and the task of the disciple maker of Jesus are one and the same. That the task of the disciple of Jesus is to daily, one day after another, one week after another, to find yourself amazed by God and astonished by God and infatuated with God. To find fresh passion for the glory of God. And day in, day out, week in, week out, take that disciple and show them the same thing. And renew their passion. Renew their zeal. And then he tells us what, it, what it's going to look like, right? Do you notice that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, there are four generations represented? Do you notice that? Look, look at this with me. What you have heard from me. All right, so you, that's one generation. That's Timothy, right? That's, that's the child of Then we have me. That's the previous generation. That's Paul. And then he starts talking about the next generations, right? He says, in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men. There's a third generation, so, so you have heard from me, so you take what you have heard from me, there's two generations, and you hand it off to another generation. You tell them to go and to find people who want to hear the glory of God. You tell them to go and to find people that are, are looking to be astonished and amazed by God, and you take them with you. You take them down the gospel's path. You, you help them stay the course. You help them rest in grace. And then, and then you know what they're going to do, Timothy? They're going to teach others. There's a fourth generation. Church, that's how the kingdom has spread. That's how the trickle that ran across the ground those, all those years ago has now turned into a vast and wide canyon that has been carved out of the stone of men and women's hearts in every generation since. So last, last week, I got on North American Mission Board's website and I had a couple things on my mind. So we've been talking to our partners in Utah. And so I was looking, initially went there, and I was went to Denver first. Though I have a, a buddy, and he is planning a church uh, in Denver, Colorado. And he's just a, a wonderful guy. He's from the state of Alabama. And God's just placed a, a call in his life. And I got on there, and I saw that in Denver, they have 29 people, 29, 29 churches coming down the pipeline that are about to be planted right in the heart of Denver. And I'm like, praise God. Praise God that he is doing that kind of work. And then I thought I'd, I'll go over and look at Salt Lake, where our partners are. Now, 
Salt Lake, you understand, is the least reached city in the United States of America. Did you realize that? There are fewer Christians in Salt Lake City than any other, in, than any other city in all of, of the United States of America. It's less than 2% reached with the gospel, which means literally it is an unreached people group. There are counties there that are less than half of 1% Christian, evangelical Christian, in, in the surrounding area around Salt Lake City. So in, in light of 29 church plants in Denver, which we praise God for, do you know how many are coming down the pipeline in Salt Lake City? Two. Two. And y'all, it broke my heart. It broke my heart. Here we are in the, in the hardest soil in America. Here we are with the most vast darkness and lostness in America. And we have two coming down the pipeline, these faithful two to push back the darkness. And here became my prayer. Oh, God, oh, God, use the disciple makers of Iron City Baptist Church to go and to infiltrate behind enemy lines and push back the lostness and to bring those far from God into intimacy and astonishment with God. What if God used us? What if God used us? What if God from rural Alabama used our disciple making to raise up church planters to go out and to reach Salt Lake City? What if he used one church that was, became brokenhearted and burdened? What, what, what if God used us so that there was never another foster vacancy in Calhoun County for the next however? What if God used us so that ne next time we need to hire a staff member, we don't even have to go outside the walls. We can, we can literally hire the pastors that God is raising up right here among us. W what if God used us as a sending hub so that we send missionaries around the world, so that we are raising up pastors and sending them to other gospel-centered churches so that we can be a part of a transformation of this generation? Y'all, all it takes, all it takes is you. You. Quirky, unique, peculiar, eccentric you. Committed to the gospel. Living day in, day out, week in, week out for the right definition of success. And if we commit ourselves to this definition of kingdom success... We might just change the world. Let's pray together this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 